Hello, you gorgeous lot. Welcome to a brand new mini-series from the lovely people at History Hat. I'm Charlotte White, you can call me Charlie, and this is Misunderstood. I'll be joined by a stellar lineup of guests who will each help me explore the lives of women who've been dealt a bit of an unfair hand by history. They may not all be great women who changed the world. They may not all be good women, but they will all be interesting. Some have been forgotten, some ignored, some misrepresented. They've all been misunderstood. My first guest is someone I'm really excited to get back on the podcast. Eilish Gregory is a doctor of early modern British history and postdoctoral Little Company of Mary Fellow in the Centre for Catholic Studies, Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University. Now, that is a fascinating job title, and I think will have to be the subject of a future episode. She's held research fellowships at the Folger Shakespeare Library, Durham University and Marsh's Library. She's published works on the plight of the Catholics during the English Revolution and Queen Catherine of Braganza's place in the court of King Charles II. She's here today to kick off our series in style and to talk to me about this most misunderstood consort and the scandal that could have cost her her crown. Hello, Eilish. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> it's Charlotte, but it's fine. It's an easy, easy mistake yeah. to make. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sh- Alex and Charlotte. <laughs> so, Alex and Charlotte. Sorry. It's okay. Don't worry. You, you can tell I'm... I've not had enough coffee today. <laughs> it's. I think we're all feeling a little bit like that. The sun started coming out and we're all just, you know, all off our game a bit. Um, but we're going to be talking about someone completely perfect today as someone who has spent a lot of time with King Charles II, reading about his wife is sort of almost a peripheral activity when she's so central to everything. So let's begin by introducing Catherine to the listeners. Um, we perhaps think of her as Charles II's hard-done-by, cheated-on and barren wife. Can you reintroduce her? Imagine we've got none of these preconceptions. Who is Catherine? Well, thank you, Charlotte. So with Catherine Braganza, she is a Portuguese princess. So she is the Portuguese Infanta. That's that was, that's the title she's given as the princess, like the princess of Portugal from the House of Braganza, based mainly in Lisbon, in Portugal. And the Braganzas had only been in charge of Portugal for about 20 years before Catherine came to England to marry Charles II. So it was a whole new dynasty that ruled Portugal at the time and so lots of uneasiness and in, in, in instability at the time but then England had also had that issue as well so oh, just just a little bit <laughs> yeah just, just a tad <laughs> and so Catherine Baganza had been brought up in a very loving household with with her brothers and sisters and she had a very sheltered life and that's something that a lot of people have focused on that you know she has been very that she was very sheltered brought up as a very devout Catholic like Catholicism was a central part of her life but she was also known to be very kind very generous and just very you know sort of try to have a positive look at outlook on the world as she saw it and so when she came over to England she did not really know what to expect other than <laughs> to then she was there to go to England marry the king hopefully have some children and to represent everything that was important about Portugal to her new subjects. Gosh, and uh, the reception she received is famously uh, not very kind from Charles's courtiers. 
No, definitely not from the courtiers. I mean, when she left Portugal, you know, they had like lots of celebrations and parties. And, you know, when she had, came to England and had public displays, you know, they had like something called the Thames, water, water spectacles and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think uh, when Catherine came to England, you know, the, the courtiers were a bit mean to her. And even Charles's rumoured to have said, oh, her hairstyle, if anyone has seen the famous portrait of Catherine before she came to England, he, he said that her hairstyle made her look like a bat, mm. which is, but we don't know if he did say that or not, but that's what is rumoured that he said. And yeah, so people said, oh, you know, she, because she dressed old fashionedly to, to the eyes of the English court who had, well, had the up to date French style, because obviously Charles II had been living in exile for the whole of the 1650s. So he had adopted the French style, and that's obviously whatever the king wears. That's what the court's going to go by. Uh-huh. Uh, so Catherine was wearing the, the fashion of Portugal, but it was slightly compared to other parts of Europe, a bit behind the time. So they still had those big giant, what I think they called farthingales, you know, yeah. those big hooped dresses <laughs> and her hair being done like the sort of triangle look that that portrait has. And so, and so, and obviously she had a bit of an olive um, skin complexion. So she was a bit darker compared to other courtiers who obviously would have had probably very pale skin which I would have definitely been fine <laughs> up in the court. Um, but it was a bit unkind because she may have not been the like the beauty of um, many of Charles's mistresses she people just say she didn't she wasn't ugly you know apparently she had very beautiful eyes and that she had a genuinely lovely smile and there was a pleasant outlook of her and she actually adopted the style of the court very quickly like she pretty much ditched the father and girls and started dressing <laughs> in the french in the french clothes in the clothes that charles had bought her as wedding gifts so when she got off the boat yeah but after <laughs> that she you know i think the courtiers were probably just being a bit mean to her after that in that regard amazing i mean it's so tempting to go cradle to grave with catherine because i i don't know about you i just feel that like there's woefully little about her um there's so few books there's so there's so little spoken about her she's almost a also ran in the story of Nell Gwynn and um et al uh that, that Charles spent time with but we're really going to drill down on a on a piece that you wrote about Catherine during the popish plot and the exclusion crisis because I think this is a brilliant way for us to start understanding the woman behind this this myth so how did this gathering storm begin and where did Catherine fit into the mix yeah uh, it's a very long and complicated story about how this (laughs) happened get comfy Um, yeah yeah exactly um so um, so the, the the Popish plot, it happened in 1678, so the autumn of 1678. So it really started kicking off from about October and just kept escalating after that and, and leading to the exclusion crisis, which I'm sure we're going to be talking about much more later. Um, so what had happened was um, beforehand, in the summer of 1678, these uh, individuals called Titius Oates, William Bedlow in Israel Tongue had gone to tell uh, members of Charles's court and even to try and tell Charles himself that there was an assassination plot to try and kill him by Catholics. And that apparently a couple of priests walking around trying to shoot the king in the park because the king famously always walked in the park, obviously with a couple of attendants, but he quite freely was happy for people to come up to talk to him. 
And so, you know, this this is what happened when they said, oh, you know, someone's trying to, you know, someone's trying to kill you. And he's just like, oh, really? Okay, whatever. So I'll carry on walking. But obviously, people thought that maybe something needs to be looked into this, you know, because the whole idea that there might be Catholics lurking around, you know, who don't like the king to try and bump him off. And so... Um, Titus Oates, William Bedloe and Israel Tump had got, gone to swear some depositions before, um, before a local justice of the peace in London called Sir Edmund Berry Godfrey. And um, shortly after that, and Godfrey disappeared and he was found um, dead in a ditch with his sword run through him in Primrose Hill in London. And so when it, it came to be realised that, that um, Oates, Bedloe, and Tung has sworn these depositions before Godfrey and hadn't been investigated. So many people thought, oh, maybe Godfrey had been had been killed because he knew too much. And there is actually a Catholic plot to kill the king. And so it sort of escalated from there. And the reason why Catherine of Braganza was brought into the mix of these whole rumours about and hysteria about the Popish plot is because her household was linked to the, the alleged plot that and as a site of where Godfrey was apparently murdered. Because um, in Primrose Hill, when they found his body, it, it, bear in mind, it's a 17th century forensics. They, they saw there was no blood around him. So clearly they knew he had been moved. His body had been moved, potentially. And so rumours started that, oh, he must have been killed at Somerset House because he lived quite close to Somerset House. From, he lived somewhere not far from the Strand, which is where Somerset House is. And so, and that's how Catherine got implicated because suddenly her household was accused and therefore she was apparently complicit to try and kill her own husband off. It's incredible for anyone who's not experienced the madness that is the Popish plot. I think the best way we can possibly describe it is it's it's the QAnon of its day because yeah. the madder it sounds, the more someone will say, ah, but, and Godfrey, his death becomes this kind of klaxon for, well, there's clearly something here. The Catholics are up to something because otherwise Godfrey wouldn't be dead. Exactly. And I mean, there's this really uh, good book that's recently come out in last year or so by Andrea McKenzie, where she looks into the whole build up to Godfrey's death and disappearance and whether had he tried to kill himself or had other, have, did certain people try and kill him? Did did Charles's brother try to kill him? Was Somerset House involved? So it's quite interesting just to look at that and how in the 17th century people tried to investigate how he died. But yeah, it's it was just escalated so much. And Godfrey became almost like this sort of martyr to the cause, if you can call it that. Bear in mind, he wasn't Catholic. Like this figure of someone who had been martyred in the defence of Protestantism and in defence of liberties and everything like that in the period. And, you know, they had playing cards famously depicting the apparent how stages of how he had gone to Somerset House was bumped off by Jesuits and was laid out um, in the chapel in Somerset House before he was taken in a little carriage and dumped in, the, in Primrose Hill. Oh my goodness and this is I mean this is shocking stuff this is implicating the Queen's household in in this so you know King and Queen they don't really live together at in this time, do they? They've both got they've both got their own thing going. Yeah, and this is and it, and I think a lot of people when they have looked at Catherine Bagans in the past have commented, "Oh, she lives separately from the king." But 
all royals did that back in the period. So even go back as far as the medieval period, the king and queen always had separate households, had separate courts, and normally lived separately. And obviously would come together for certain things and, you know, share accommodation and things like that. But so it wasn't that unusual. And Charles actually spent a lot of time with Catherine at Somerset House um, in the evenings, like um, having social gatherings in her um, sort of like her own like special parlour area, um, like the sort of the withdrawing room and that sort of things like that. But um, they just didn't physically share the same bed but then again kings and queens generally didn't do that back then they 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 always lived separately in that regard so yeah so that that you know it's a it's a big deal for for her to be implicated i mean charles going to somerset house this this actually is a great time to talk about um what was at somerset house for him so aside from the obvious there are ladies of the bedchamber and he's famous for spending time with those in his own Catherine's got quite a lot of she's got a lot of artists around hasn't she she's she's a cultural kind of butterfly in a way isn't she yeah and um, in recent years people have started to look more seriously into her cultural um, patronage for this period so people like Adam Morton um, and Edward Corp for example have looked at the fact that she was a great patron of artists and there's this beautiful painting of her depicted as her namesake St Catherine of Alexandria um, which I think is um, in Hillsborough Castle in Northern Ireland now and it depicts her as her as her saint with with the Catherine wheel with a cross and it and it was one of and it was actually a painting that was replicated by other courtiers because they really liked the iconography and even um, Barbara Villiers Charles's then favourite mistress copied the image because, you know, why rub salt in a wound a bit more by copy, by, by having the same portrait done but with, you, but with her face in it. <laughs> um, and she's also quite famously um, looked, you know, she sponsored and patronised um, musicians, Italian musicians and Portuguese musicians in her chapel. And this is, again, something that I think Peter Leach has done quite a lot of um, research on. And we have to, I mean, so the, the sad thing is that Somerset House, because um, I went on a tour there last summer, there's hardly anything left of the original 17th century building anymore, which is really sad, apart from a few tombstones and the original arch, you know, underground walkway. Okay. But the chapel could seat about 300 people. It was a massive chapel. Wow. And it had beautiful paintings and lots of the artists of the day that had been done by Henrietta Maria and also herself decorating and adding to the chapel and it was somewhere that a lot of Catholics went to in that period even though they weren't supposed to obviously because it was illegal to practice Catholicism at the time unless you were the queen or an ambassador and so it was a it was a great site so she was so it was seen as a sort of like the cultural hub yeah of of art and music but also Somerset House had a lot of um illegal um printing licensing going on so a lot of illegal printing of book religious books and catholic books on her grounds so it so there's a lot more somerset house than people have given it credit for really that you know that was operating under her watch yeah if she was sort of not trying to give too much attention to the fact that she probably would have known that these activities were going on that's amazing i mean you know to think that this is all going on this is none of this is happening without her knowledge so Essentially, she's engaging in sort of illegal religious practices, 
almost would would the printing counters count as being sort of sedition and libelous and printing things that that are illegal is 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 that is it dodgy um it was definitely not legal <laughs> um, <laughs> but what, but, i mean this is something that um a friend of mine chelsea rootkey has done a lot of research on it, and she's um, published on this as well is that Catherine, by her articles of marriage, was allowed to have Catholic books for worship in her chapel, so they could be specially imported for her from okay. Europe. But people were printing books on the grounds still, which wasn't quite legal. But obviously, and throughout the 1660s and 1670s, there were people regularly presented for illegally printing on the grounds and do odd raid every now and then check to see if there's any of these illegal books hanging around. And they normally did find books. So clearly people were printing, selling these books on that. So there was a uh, market for it as such. So wow. it's it's, re- so it's really, really amazing. And yeah, so it's, it's just amazing what, what got up, you know, was happening on, you know, in the, in the context, in the lead up to the Pope's plot, all these Catholic activities, in on in her main residence of Somerset House. Wow. So she's really facilitating anybody who's, you know, Catholic curious <laughs> to to read and to, to visit her chapel. I understand from your from your article that there's a there's a lot of women that convert in her household and, and around her. Yeah, um, I mean, Barbara Villiers very famously um, converted to Catholicism and a lot of Charles II's mistresses were Catholic as well. I mean, Nell Gwynne very famously wasn't Catholic because um, there's that freight, you know, that freight, <laughs> so she, when people were attacking her carriage, thinking it was the um, Dutch of Portsmouth's carriage, and she said, I I am not the Catholic or I am the Protestant or, you know, <laughs> to make the point that, you know, wrong carriage. <laughs> but, but incidentally, um, um, Catherine and Nell Gwynne actually got on quite well. Well, I'll say quite well together. In, in terms of mistresses, they got on quite well together. Gosh, wow. I can't imagine them being together, though. I mean, they see each other at the theatre or because Nell wasn't at court so much, was she? Being well, she... so lowborn. Well, she um, wasn't, but she had her own, Charles gave her a house because of her being low born. But what was really interesting is obviously Charles always made any mistress of his like a lady in waiting to the queen. Because again, yeah, um, <laughs> Nell Gwynne was made a lady in waiting, but she took the wage, but didn't serve Catherine. And apparently Catherine liked her that she didn't want to, because Nell didn't want to... Um, upset the queen by being present physically in front of her so i think she loved the fact that nugrin took the money but wouldn't didn't want to offend the queen so and she actually gave a pension to nugrin and charles's son after nugrin had died and after charles had died so clearly she did she had fondness for for them it's incredible this i mean this all starts chipping away at that kind of image of her as being this you know scorned um hard done by women that actually she was quite magnanimous to the other women who who shared her husband's bed yeah yeah, yeah so exception of Barbara. <laughs> yeah well yeah well yeah Bar- barbara was a special um case in that regard but yeah but to go back to your question yeah there was lots of conversions taking place um in at the time not only in her court but also in the other courts as well and obviously her brother-in-law James Duke of York very famously converted to Catholicism which obviously 
really upset the balance, which obviously played into the Popish plot um, quite well, really, because it obviously leads to the exclusion crisis with what do we do with a Catholic heir? That's it's incredible. So talking about Catholic heirs, um, you compared Catherine with her mother-in-law, Queen Henrietta Maria. Both of them are Catholic princesses who marry Protestant kings under the the sort of understanding that you will not have Catholic heirs. This is not going to happen. You don't get to talk to them about religion. Um, how similar are their stories? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really good question because they were very different, uh, very different characters. I mean, Henrietta Maria was very famously, I'm going to try and make, uh, you know, spread Catholicism around as such. And, you know, she was very, she was very, she wasn't shy of pushing what she wanted, which I think why she was sort of seeing, sort of see, in a way, almost like an antichrist, not, I wouldn't mean, I don't, as an antichrist as such, because, she was really pushing it. I mean, when she came over to England, she was, I mean, think what, she was 15 when she came over to marry Charles I in 1625. And the same year that Charles became king. And, you know, she had, as part of her articles of marriage, she was she was allowed to worship openly, publicly in a Catholic chapel and have a certain amount of religious orders with her, and including Capuchins, among others. Um, and in a way, in, in what was similar with that with Henrietta Maria and Catherine, was that they both had articles of marriage guaranteeing their religious rights and they were allowed to have um, religious orders in their household. Um, in terms of other, you know, other similarities and comparisons, because um, Catherine had, was allowed to have a chapel wherever she worshipped, that, that was guaranteed in her articles. But what was slightly different with Henrietta Maria and Catherine was that, uh, and this comes, which I talk about in the article, is the fact that when Catherine and Charles's marriage was um, signed off as such in, in the in the articles of, in the Anglo-Portuguese treaty, which is also a trade treaty with marriage sort of stuck in between all the <laughs> or sections, because you know might, might as well do two things at once. Um, they in Parliament during the Popeshon Exclusion Crisis, they pointed out the fact that Charles's marriage to Catherine had been sanctioned by parliament whereas charles has sort of pushed through just marrying henrietta maria you know despite the fact that england was at war with france and kept being on and off at war with france and so they were so people in favor of catherine said oh well we liked her so this makes her different from her mother-in-law because we agreed to the marriage you know we agreed to having her here we wanted her here we probably did not want Henrietta Maria so much, but then she wasn't Spanish, so different times. But I think they both had to face similar hostilities. Obviously, being a Catholic minority in a post-majority country, they had they faced similar issues. You know, anti anti-Catholicism. They were sort of seen as the they were both the premier figures of Catholicism in the land who yeah. could legally worship in the country, even though their subjects technically couldn't. And, you know, they both didn't have English, really, when they came over. So they both had to learn English. They both had to learn and adopt English customs. And I think Henrietta Maria and Catherine did re get on relatively well because um, Henrietta Maria purposely came over to England shortly after Catherine and Charles got married so she could help settle Catherine in and also to sort of help her with setting up her own, you know, 
um, audiences in the evenings before Catherine decided to set up her own. Even though Henrietta Maria at the time was a bit more popular, but as soon as Henrietta Maria went back to France permanently in 1665, Catherine took over everything. And so I don't think they, so I think they got on relatively well. I think they probably understood the similar situation that they both came in, yeah. um, but in, in different time periods as such and under different circumstances. Um, but as probably as far, that's probably as far as the, um, similarities lay because yeah um Harriet Maria was definitely very pushy Catherine Ganza Fick was a bit more pragmatic she was a bit more probably a bit more understanding that you can't really push a Catholic agenda because you're going to really annoy people apparently Henrietta Maria's um portraits were very um sympathetic she had one heck of an overbite but yeah she was very pretty <laughs> yeah i yeah, I, I have read that. I mean, have you read that one as well? Yeah, poor, poor thing. Poor I thing. know, isn't it? Awful? I mean, she doesn't, she can't even answer for herself. It's just rude. Um, but I guess one of the big differences between them is had there not been the, had there not been a, a revolution, had there not been a civil war, um, Henrietta Maria would have been quite secure in her position, having, you know, popped out several heirs and spares and, daughters for good marriages for the king um whereas catherine doesn't um she she doesn't have any children and there's kind of no sign of anything coming down the line um so coming back to the popish plot we've got this huge scandal the queen and her household are implicated um she's not doing kind of the one job that she's got which is to make heirs how easy would it have been at this time for charles to use this as an excuse to send catherine away and remarry yeah i mean i mean this is something that people really did try and push on him as well because obviously by the, by this point um in 1678 catherine was just about to hit 40s because her, her birthday is fifth is 25th of november which is saint catherine's Saint Day, which is why she was named after her and why she wanted to be depicted as her. And so obviously in the modern age, you can have children at 40 and, and after that. But obviously back then with different life expectancies, you know, 40, you know, is pretty much not going to happen. And she had been pregnant a few times in the 1660s, but very intermittently and, and she never carried full term. And so, there, so I think. It, even as early as 1663, so one year after marriage, people were trying to push Charles to get rid of her because, like, oh, she hasn't, ha you know, she's you've been married for a year, she's not pregnant, and clearly there's something wrong with her. Mm. And it, it's really interesting because Charles um, understood the importance that he needed to have an legitimate heir, and he, and he clearly had no issue with producing children, and yeah. quite famously, but he didn't blame Catherine at all which was really which for which is actually you know quite kind of him really you know, considering the time period as well because yeah. he said it's not her fault that she can't have children because obviously they had both been trying and he and you know saw the the absolute upset she had that she couldn't physically carry a child to full term yeah. but he didn't want to see it as an excuse to get rid of her as such I mean there was this famous um um, plot by um, the second Duke of Buckingham to try and you know who and he approached this to Charles funny enough said you know we could always 
pretend that the Queen has abandoned you by us kidnapping her and sending her on a ship to America to a plantation, then you can remarry. And obviously, Charles, that did not go down well with Charles. He actually briefly banished Buckingham for such a <laughs> for such a plot. <laughs> um, but there are other people saying, oh, you know, in the Bible it said, and I, come, uh, I think I do mention this in the article, that in the Bible it's, you know, it does say, you know, if you have a barren wife, you can legally divorce her and marry someone else because clearly she has failed in what she was meant to do again. It, you know, not, you know, not putting, putting all the blame on, on women on this. And um, yeah. again, Charles was like, no. And in, in the paper, during the post-war exclusion crisis, people really tried to push this on him by saying, you know, just get rid of her, marry, marry a Protestant and then, and then you can get a pros- and then hopefully get a a child with a with a, with new wife that could be a Protestant heir, and then therefore we don't have to worry about James, and he'll go further down the line, and you know end off as such. But um, yeah, Charles was not having it at all. He would not divorce Catherine at all. He you know the, even even anyone mentioning it would you know made him cross about it. How valuable. Was the was the alliance with Portugal really? Is it is is that's sort of a, a, a something that you you bring up in the article, talking about actually you know we we had a really good alliance. Breaking up that marriage breaks up that alliance. So how important is it? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, yeah, and, and this is the thing. This is one potential reason where some people say, oh, maybe cynically, Charles might have wanted to keep Catherine. I mean, I think he... He didn't love her in the way that you know we would identify with love today, but he he clearly had affection for her, he, like genuine affection for her. But um, one of the arguments that I talk about in the article is the fact that um, the Anglo-Portuguese alliance mattered a lot to Britain for stability, for the fact that they can go trade um, around the world because Portugal had become a big, mighty power like Spain mm. in overseas ex. Um, exploration and um, settling in different parts of the world and so when he married when Charles and Catherine married um, as part of the marriage dowry um, England gained Tangier in Morocco and Bombay in India and so these were seen as great trading opportunities to all the different parts of the east and also of Africa with you know with spices and other luxurious goods but also Portugal had links to South America as well. So they had trade links in parts of the Caribbean, but also famously in Brazil. And so if you're going to obviously try and divorce a, Caf- a Portuguese princess, not only are you going to get rid of the queen, you're also going to get rid of an important trade link. And also means you're going to, there's going to be a country who are going to be really cross with you <laughs> and might make England's trade um, trading you know, an absolute nightmare. And um, you can tell, I mean, I talk about this in the article, that um, Portugal was actually really putting the pressure on England in 1678-79. Uh, 
because England and Portugal had problems for years because Portugal hadn't paid all the dowry and were causing problems for people trading in Portugal from England. And um, yeah, they were putting restrictions like on wool and on fishing and other things. So clearly that was almost like their passive aggressive, <laughs> you, me- you mess with our princess, we're going to, uh, we're going to lead you dry, fight, you know, trade wise. Oh my god, I love passive aggressive trade. It always always makes me laugh. But didn't they when they when Catherine first came over and she's it's a big dowry that's been arranged, didn't they try and pay it off in spice at one point? Yeah. So they when they, when she came over they thought they were gonna get it in mon in monetary value. Yeah. Give, and then give and us then, the money. <laughs> and you know, you know how we talk about exchange rates, you know, like say sterling with dollars and that sort of thing. Yeah, um they had an issue that um Portugal thought England thought it was going to be a lot more than than it was because um, the Portuguese did it in cruzados. So there was also oh we got the finances wrong. <laughs> we got the exchange rate wrong. But yeah, so Portugal tried to pay um, the dowry through arrears in physical goods and through like spices and you know sugar and that sort of thing. And obviously the English English were like we wanted money. Yeah. So, you know, we're in debt, but Portugal was also in debt, but they thought the trade would actually be um, a better solution. Oh um, but the English didn't quite see it that way. Wow. It's it's funny because that, that almost leads us in, in a sort of roundabout way that makes perfect sense, I promise, to the sort of second part of the Popish plot which is after the popish plot you've got the exclusion crisis so the person who brokers the deal with portugal which ends up with a queen who can't produce an heir a dowry that's been paid in a big vat of spice that we don't want and no money and trading points that at the moment are just kind of i mean tangier is a money pit it's just eating money and resources the person who brokers this deal is the earl of clarendon whose daughter is married in a sort of secret scandal to James, James, Duke of York, who is a Catholic. And there's an argument floating around, isn't there, that it's all been done so that the Earl of Clarendon's heirs will come to the throne. Are they Catholic like their dad? No, they definitely were not Catholic. Um, and that's what's really interesting. So as you as you say, um, Clarendon's daughter, Anne Hyde, married James because she was his mistress and then he and then they and then she got pregnant and James actually did the honourable thing and married her, but this didn't go down very well because she was <laughs> not exactly a royal at all. And um Clarendon was the one who, as you say, quite rightly brokered the deal for Charles and Catherine to marry and had really pushed this Anglo-Portuguese alliance and Clarendon was accused in 1663 that he had done this deliberately because again this is this is when there was already questions about Catherine's fertility by saying oh it's because he wants his heirs on the throne um and so but by 1678 Anne Hyde had died and and James had remarried a Italian princess called Mary of Modena who was a young teenager when she came over and James was much much older um so there was a worry that he was going to be catholic heirs but his oldest two surviving children with anne hyde were two were two girls mary and anne both very devout protestants because as soon as they were born charles had them at his court so they could be educated in 
um, to the Anglican faith. And so therefore there could be, there was no chance at all they were going to be raised as Catholics. And, you know, Mary and Anne were very devout, um, devout um, members of the Church of England. So there was no worries there. And so when it when it was it came to the exclusion crisis, there was a there was debate in Parliament and also in pamphlet literature because um there was a the Licensing Act Act had lapsed, which meant that people who were normally restricted from criticizing you know the king, religion, and that sort of thing could actually say what they wanted because they hadn't renewed the Act. And so there was even a debate about whether the line of succession could be skipped over James because he was Catholic, and replaced him on the throne with his eldest daughter, Mary, who had just gone off to um, the Netherlands with her, having married um, William of Orange, who would be the future William III, who, who was not only James's nephew, but also his son-in-law. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, not so complicated family tree there. Um and there was also debates as well, but whether there was rumours that Charles had not had actually um, had a big marriage because he there was rumours that he had married before Catherine um, his first mistress Lucy Walter, who was the mother of his eldest child, James Duke of Monmouth. And so there were people who were even saying, "Well, why don't we have Monmouth um, replacement as you know replacing James as heir?" And so it gets really, really messy. And so Charles actually swears several times on oath and to his Privy Council and elsewhere that the only legal marriage he ever had was to Catherine. It was not to Lucy Walton. He ha and he makes that case several times when he, quite easily, if he wanted to, he could have said, oh, yeah, it's not it's not real. We, we, we you know, completely annul the marriage and end of, uh, you know, end of story. And um, that doesn't happen at all. He always swore that Catherine was his only legal wife. That and so people just got frustrated. You know that they were given these all these possible options, and he was refusing them. It's awful, and all of it, every every single attack, and it's constant for about what three or four years. Yeah, it's every single day, constant attacks. They're all in effect about Catherine they're all they're all related to Catherine either he shouldn't have married her in the first place he shouldn't be married to her now he should get rid of her um she hasn't done a job all of all of these things all comes down to her how did she react to all of this pressure all these accusations made I mean the, the ridiculous ones about you know you're trying to poison your husband is just insane but how did she react to all of this and to the threat to her position. What does she do? I'm guessing she sits quietly and says nothing. Well, probably outwardly in public she did, but she wasn't going down quietly through that <laughs> way. She was she was definitely made of much stronger stuff that people that, that you know than she's ever been given credit for, really. Um because the first thing she does is that, you know, she obviously pleads her case before her husband that I have not plotted to kill you. <laughs> and he and not only does he say believe her, because she definitely wasn't wanting to kill him. But when people kept saying, oh, you know, Catherine's trying to kill you, he was like, no, she, I mean, he, he, 
it's where he says it, it's not particularly kind because he says you know she's not she's not capable you know she hasn't got it actually in her to try and kill me if she wants to <laughs> you know she's actually a bit of a feeble woman but she but she has no heart you know horrible bone in her body but when it came to people say oh you know uh, Sir Emma Berry Godfrey was clear, killed at Somerset House at this particular time he just went no she didn't I was there <laughs> I was with her at the time <laughs> in Somerset House she definitely did not kill you know have you know Jesuits murdering Sir Emma Berry Godfrey because I would have known about it you know I was there um but yeah she what she does is that she does several things so the one thing that she has to try and deal with is the fact that her Catholic you know her household and and she has a mixture of Catholic and Protestant servants. Those who, you know, loyally served her for years, was that she tried to protect her household. So there's there's a lot of um, attention on her household and people to try and you know expel them from court. You know, put a you know unless you're definitely needed, no Catholics beyond ten miles of a certain perimeter in London, including of her household. And so she. Starts inquiring what exactly do her articles of marriage in that Anglo-Portuguese treaty say that she's allowed to have. So she's already making inquiries. What is the definite number of Catholic servants I'm legally allowed to have? And, you know, people are drawing up who are Catholic in our household to work out whether to go, whether they should be expelled or not. Some Catholic servants do go. Um, her physician is arrested, accused of, you know, the poisoning angle, but he was actually acquitted in April so people actually were like yeah no he definitely wasn't going to kill the king um several there, there were Jesuits who were hung and tried after being and executed um hung drawn and quartered for their alleged involvement in the plot but one thing she also does is that she writes to her brother who is the king of Portugal you know explain <laughs> the situation and obviously her brother King Pedro II was not particularly happy that his sister Again, Infanta of Portugal, but also the Queen of England being accused of plotting to kill her husband. And so there's a lot of uh, diplomatic, international diplomatic situations going on because he sends an ambassador over to work out what on earth is going on. <laughs> and so the English, the English are like trying to downplay it because I think obviously, you know, they're quite happy to maybe accuse the Queen of doing it, but they don't expect Portugal to come over to go, what are you doing? And so they didn't try and downplay it. They tried to try and sort the situation that's saying, you know, it's just a few of my parliamentarians, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll try and dissolve parliament, you know, I'll try and sort the situation out. And so it becomes a bit of a mess. And it just shows that she actually had a lot of cards to play that she decided to utilise on this particular moment. Amazing. She wasn't afraid to, yeah, she wasn't afraid to actually assert her authority when needed. I think she was a lot tougher, and this shows that she's a lot tougher than anyone gives her credit for, to actually sit down and say, right, I need to know what my rights are, and to sit and go through that document and find out exactly where she stands, and to tell her brother, because he's her strongest ally you know, internationally. I think she kind of kicked a bit of ass at this point. Oh, t- she totally did. Yeah, <laughs> she, she was like, right. I've had enough of this, you know. I'm, and the thing is, I mean, I think again, the one problem that um, lots of biographies have, where they do talk about Catherine Baganzo, because there's not that many that have been written solely about her. And when they do, they normally focus on, oh, she brought tea over, didn't have children, didn't do much. That, that's really <laughs> the line that that has been 
flogged for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. But she she was actually, even though she didn't have any children, she still actually wielded a lot of power. You know, she had a lot of people wanting to visit her, wanting to kiss her hand. You know, Privy Purse accounts always, uh, you know, she's getting gifts from people all the time. And, you know, the the when she becomes queen, the Irish are already sending over people to say, try, you know, try and get some liberty of conscience for Catholics in Ireland as 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 her new subjects and and she was apparently even though again dispelling the whole myth oh you know she wasn't popular at court because you know apparently you know she dressed old fat you know dressed weirdly and you know wasn't as pretty I mean there's one account where I read I read this book or biography written about Catherine from like the 1960s it was either the 1930s or 1960s where apparently she looked like a frog because of her salad, her olive coloured skin making her look green which I think is just absolutely horrible description that just feels a little bit racist that's horrible yeah um i mean it's a sign of the times when the book was written i can't remember which author that was now who wrote that but i was very annoyed at that i think it may be carola oman that wrote that one on on a biography of mary of modena but obviously catherine comes up a lot in that um but catherine was quite popular i mean the one thing that um is talked about and i think john miller talks about in his book on um on popery and politics and also um, John Kenyon in his book on the Popish Pop from the nine, which is about 50 years old now they all talk about the fact that Catherine was actually popular at court so she may have not been as you know flaunting flaunting it as the mistresses who were unpopular because you know they're, they're literally bleeding the um, the money the king's expenditure dry every year but yeah. the queen was you know seemed to be quite a, a genuinely kind person and that's you know she had, and that's someone that people wanted to get the patronage from that people wanted to be seen in her courtly circles with so again dispelling the you know the root the rumors and the myths about her amazing i'm also thinking about sort of all the all the illegitimate children as well so every time the king has an illegitimate child there's a lot of expenditure that goes on that kid and it's yeah the the frustration with the mistresses and their seemingly limitless ability to procreate <laughs> and, and and bleed the and bleed the coffers dry because yeah, every time every time a new child had come they had to have their own household and then it was like <laughs> oh I need to actually maybe start marrying them off to you know because even though they're illegitimate they need they need good families because they have royal blood in them you know oh, it's yeah. like it's like dowries oh no when <laughs> it's the female <laughs> children and it's like if you're looking for for these bloodlines now just look at the royal family and everywhere around they're they're everywhere um so we mentioned Catherine becoming a rallying point for Catholics at court um but she's less than generous when it comes to relations with the Duchess of York so tell us how Catherine reacted when she's asked to stand up for Mary of Modena's Catholic rights yeah, see, this is interesting. And again, it almost brings back to the question we had about Harriet Maria that, that we assumed that, you know, they would get on well. And Harriet Maria and Catherine, to be fair, I think did relatively get on as well as can be, bear in mind, you know, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationships. Um, people assume that Catherine and Mary would naturally get on because, you know, they're both foreign Catholic princesses, both coming over to marry, you know, the, you know, the Stuarts, you know, one being the king, one potentially being the future king that they would get on quite happily, you know, together. Oh, no, it was not the case. <laughs> Mary and Catherine did not get on well at the beginning. Because uh, when, Ka- when, Ma- when Mary comes over, she's 15. 
to marry James. Catherine is in her mid-30s at this point. So if anything, it might not only be the fact, you know, there's this new, young, potentially fertile person coming over <laughs> to producing children. You know, if you think about it, when you're in your 30s, you've got this 15-year-old, you know, you probably like, it's the, the, the generation gap. And also she's yeah. probably thought, you know, Mary would not have matured as much in that regard. And Mary wants, um, was meant to have her own chapel to worship in um, when she came over to England. And because uh, Catherine Ganser had set up in Somerset House after Henrietta Maria died in 1669 in France, Somerset House was then gifted to Catherine as her main residence. They said, well, you don't, because she had been at St. James's Palace before them. They said, well, if you're not using St. James's really anymore, and there's a chapel there which you used to worship until you moved your household to Somerset House. Why don't you give it to Mary? And Catherine just went, nope, it's mine. <laughs> she was not giving that chapel up at all. Because she, as far as she was concerned, that was still hers. If she wanted to go to St. James's Palace, that had to be her chapel when she was there. And so Mary oh. had to worship in like a little tiny private area somewhere in Whitehall pretty much in almost like a cloister type situation and so that probably did not go down well to begin to begin with but obviously Catherine being queen she wasn't you know her word meant you know overruled the Duchess of York as such um but when the Popish plot happened you know with all the problems having happening with Catherine's household and Catholics being expelled it also implied to any other royal court so it applied to anyone in Charles's court in James's court, but also in Mary's court. And so Mary and James had both beseeched Catherine to, because they were having to get rid of some of their servants, that could she just take, you know, absorb them into her household for protection? Because they thought being queen should be able to have more. And she refused to do that because, you know, she was already struggling enough to protect her, from the from way I see it anyway, she was already struggling to protect her own Catholic householders and officers and servants. She yeah. couldn't also try and protect theirs, which obviously... Would, did not go down very well with Mary and James. But I'm seeing it in a way, I mean, probably by maybe slight bias, because I look at Catherine. But I can sort of see where she's coming from, because, you know, she's already struggling. She's already, all the eyes are, and attention are already on her. I mean, Mary and James already have that issue as well, because um, I talk about it briefly in the article, but it's, it, it deserves it a separate article in itself, that um, when investigations for Pembroke were taking place and Somerset House has been investigated, um, Mary and James's secretary, Edward Coleman's papers were looked into and it turned out, and again, sort of fed into, oh, there is actually a popish plot, was that there was letters between Coleman and um, several of Louis the, the French Catholic King Louis XIV's um, officials um, and priests to basically offering bribes so that... Um, to give to certain politicians in Parliament to sort of um, dissolve Parliament and then have an, a pro-French faction in in the pocket as such. And so when those letters were revealed, they were like, oh, there might actually generally be a Popish plot. And so that's why Mary and James had a lot of heat as well and why they again tried to get Catherine to take on the servants. So it didn't, so yeah, so back then it was it didn't go down very well. But I think things improved from over the years. And after... Charles had died and James became king and obviously Queen um, Mary became queen. You know, I think relationships did get better and Ma and Catherine was actually one of the witnesses to Mary, to the birth of James Francis Edward Stuart by Mary. 
And she met, visited Mary when Mary was in exile in the 1690s when she finally returned to Portugal. So I think relationships had had warmed by them. But yeah, back in the 1670s, they were not they were not uh, particularly great, I would say. Uh, and Coleman, I mean, he, you know, being caught, unfortunately, red handed with these papers was almost a gift, wasn't it, to Charles? Because there kind of are some papers linking us to France and Catholicism, but they won't be found for another hundred or so years. Yeah, because, um, yeah, because I mean, obviously Coleman lost his life because of those ones, because it was like he's committed treason because he's conspiring with the French, yeah. as were other people, just the others didn't get caught. But yeah, um, the, the secret treaty of Dover, which you're alluding to, which obviously Coleman was aware about and, and sort of people suspected was about, um, ironically, Catherine's, because um, there were a few, about five Catholics had signed the secret treaty of Dover along with Charles, where Charles promised he would convert to Catholicism if Louis would then send an army over to quash any potential uprisings that may occur when this happens. But he was in, but he was getting money from Louis in the meantime for this. Obviously, Charles was poor. He needed, mm-hmm. he needed to pay yeah. off his mistresses. Yeah. And, um, mistresses. Yeah. But what's really interesting is the five Catholics that were there who signed it were members of Catherine's household. And Catherine was there when, um, was in Dover when the secret treaty of Dover, um, was signed. Cause obviously it was the public treaty and then the secret one. And so her household were were actually involved in that, and so and Catherine knew would have known the details of of this that her husband potentially was going to convert to Catholicism one day, which obviously he did um, right at the very end. But you know, there was always that hope. But yeah, so it it probably was just as well that no one actually discovered that particular one because I think that probably would have completely altered the situation for her perhaps, if the public did know and if politicians genuinely did know about the secret treaty and that her off, her um, courtier, courtiers were involved in it. My goodness. Well, listeners, are you still thinking about Catherine as being a sort of quiet little mousy type? She's got her fingers in everything. It's amazing. Um, so, Eilish, look, I've got to ask you, before we start wrapping up, I need to ask you the $64 million question. Why do you think Charles stayed married to Catherine? Oh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. It's, I think that's the one question people always do ask. And that's the one thing that is always quite strong in any biographies of Charles II or on Catherine is why did they stay together? Why didn't Charles go, especially, you know, with um, there was this famous divorce case in 1670 between Lord Roos, where he divorced his wife who had an affair and had set up um, with another per- you know, with another man as he got to divorce her. And Charles, because it was a, a noble, it had to be debated in the House of Lords and Charles actually attended the entire debate. And so people thought that maybe he was trying to get tips on how to divorce <laughs> Catherine. And, yeah, and again, he was like, no, that's not happening. Um, but it's, 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 it's a tricky one because, again, I don't think he loved her the same way as he did his mistresses, but he did have an effect genuine affection for her and i think that kind of happened anyway when she nearly died in 1663 when she um was so ill and so delirious that she and he was at her bedside i should add the entire time in between visiting barbara villiers in the evenings for supper he always stayed at her bedside for over a month pretty much because she was that ill and people thought she was generally going to die and she 
was convinced in her delirium at one point that she had had she had given birth to three children by him and she and she was upset because she thought one of the babies in her delirium that was ugly and he reassured her oh no it's it's a handsome baby and i think in i think that changed things for him because i think he saw how genuinely not only did she love him but also how desperately she wanted to have children to give him and you know it, he did you know always defend her honor when needed to um because barbara videos snubbed her one time within earshot of the king and he literally told her to get out of the room and <laughs> yeah so bear in mind she was then the prime mistress you know he he was like you are not talking to the queen like that and he i think they genuinely did have affection for each other you know they still did things together and obviously during the published plot you know she moved back temporarily to whitehall until the heat died down but she was there at his bedside when he was dying and he begged her forgiveness for how he had been to her. And and when she had to leave temporarily because she was she had cried so much, she had to ha- be taken out of the room because she was exhausted and she begged his forgiveness. He he, he was pretty much, he does, why is she asking me for forgiveness? It should be I having forgiveness. And so they seem to have almost like a, a sort of, um, I'm trying to think of the word, a loving relationship, but it wasn't a sexual relationship. It was more like, it, yeah, it was much more um, platonic. That's the word, a much more platonic relationship. Yeah, he ended up sort of having having those relationships almost with quite a lot of the the former mistresses. The ones that you know, it wasn't the relationship wasn't sort of as fiery and as passionate as it as it had been. But he kind of kept them around and sort of seemed to genuinely like the company of women yeah yeah he's, he, i think he, he was a very um compared to his dad he was definitely much more a people person <laughs> in, in more ways than one <laughs> which it's always very hard to talk about that with charles II without then having the kind of nudge nudge wink wink yeah he was fond of women's company yeah yeah well, he's a people <laughs> person yeah because yeah, he he did re-people a lot of the country um catherine i mean the, the problem is with her i sort of still sort of gravitate towards saying poor Catherine because but she's not she's got agency and she needs more looking at she's been overlooked she's been ignored she's been forgotten and definitely misunderstood so if you had 30 seconds to reintroduce Catherine to the world what would you say I would say that Catherine is a queen that we shouldn't underestimate at all she is a woman that not only survived different hardships in terms of phys- her physical um, life, but also one that she had to deal with politically as well. But also a figure that was who was highly sought after for her patronage, her devotion, but also for the fact that she was a genuinely good person that people wanted to be around. And that even after when Charles died, was someone that they still wanted to go to patronage and also to go and listen to some catholic sermons in her chapel i think she sounds amazing and i hope that we get many more things to read about her from you in the future eilish thank you so much for joining me well thank you for having me again